Please turn to Genesis 19 if you're not there already. As you can see there in your bulletin, today's a sermon is called Lot's Family After Sodom. And it's true that worldly living wrecks spiritual lives. And that's what happened with Lot's family. Even after they got outside of Sodom, we see the, the effects of what Sodom did to them. I'm going to start reading there in verse 15. Genesis 19, starting in verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass, when they had brought them outside, that he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. Then Lot said to them, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have increased your mercy with which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there, is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. And he said to him, see, I have found favor or see, I have favored you concerning this thing also, and that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen upon the earth when, when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and, and Gomorrah from the Lord out, out of the heavens. So he overthrew those those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So we'll read read the rest of the of the verses there, verses thirty through thirty-eight. We'll come back to those. So last week we ended with Lot, his wife, and his two daughters already on the outside of the city. It says that there in verse sixteen. They are outside of Sodom. The angels did everything for them. When they were hesitating, when the whole family was hesitating, the angels grabbed their hands and and quickly took them out of the city. I want us to notice a command that the angels, one of the angels spoke to them and gave them a command. Look at the command there in verse 17. The angel gave them this command to Lot and his family. In verse 17, he said, Escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains, lest you be destroyed. So they're already outside of Sodom, but they still had a little bit more to go in order for them to be entirely safe from the destruction. And God was waiting. God was being patient with his people until they got far enough away. You can imagine how how much destruction was coming upon those cities. So they needed to get further away there to escape to the mountains, not to stay anywhere in the plain where those cities were. Very clear instructions. Don't stay anywhere in the plain. Don't look behind you. Escape to the mountains. And you can think that they were, they would have been motivated to obey these instructions. The angel said, lest you die. 
escape for your life. That is good enough motivation to to do what the angel what the angel had said. And after everything that that Lot had seen, you would think that he would have quickly just said, "Yes, sir. Whatever you say, I'll do it. I'm ready. I'm ready, and I'm willing to obey." Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience. But he didn't do that. Lot's answer to this angel was that he could not escape to the mountains lest, lest some evil overtake him and he die. We don't know what, what he was scared of. We don't know if he was thinking about a specific thing or if he was just so used to city living that he didn't want to go to be in the mountains. But he was here debating with this angel. He was here trying to talk his way out of going to work, going to the mountains, going to talk his way out of doing what he was told to do. And we can think that that's not a wise thing to debate with an angel. But it is amazing that God in his mercy allowed this to happen. Again, God's patience to his people. And I think that's the way it was with Lot. Lot was used to talking his way out of everything, getting his way, used to even talking his way into, in this case, into going to Sodom. He told this angel about, I'm not Sodom, going to Zoar. He told this angel about Zoar that it's just a little city, isn't it? Isn't it a little one? Zoar means little or insignificant. It wasn't like big, bad Sodom. It was just this little insignificant city as they were walking, as they were, they were quickly leaving Sodom and making their way towards the mountains, they were passing by Zoar. And he said, well, can I go there? Can I, can I stay there instead of going to, to the mountains? The problem with Zoar was that it was one of five cities that were to be destroyed. All five cities of the plain were to be destroyed. All five cities were allies together. All the kings of these cities went to war together in, in Genesis 14. And obviously they all were guilty of the same wickedness. So they all were facing the same fate. We know about Sodom and Gomorrah because they were the biggest of the, of the, of the five. Sodom was the biggest. It was the main city that was responsible for all of this sin. But all five cities were to be destroyed. You see it there in verse 21, what the angel told to Lot. See, I have favored you concerning this thing also, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. So the plan was to overthrow Zoar along with the other cities. It was to be destroyed. Zoar was to be destroyed, but it wasn't. Why wasn't it destroyed? For the sake of Lot. And we can think about it. It's Lot, not not Lot in a strong, in a spiritually strong position, praying for Zoar or trying to intercede on behalf of this city. It's Lot in a miserable, weak spiritual condition. For his sake, God had mercy upon upon Lot and Zor was spared. Turn to Deuteronomy chap, uh, chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 29, I'm going to read verse 23. And we see that because of God's patience towards his people, even Zoar was spared. There in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 29. The whole land is brimstone, salt and burning. It is not sown, nor does it bear, nor does any grass grow there. Like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, those are the other four cities, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Is Zoar mentioned there? It's not. One of the five cities of the plain, it is not mentioned there. 
It was never destroyed. Never destroyed because of God's patience with one of his righteous people, even in his weak state with Lot. So Lot had already entered Zoar when the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. They were far enough away for destruction to come. They, they were safe from the destruction. They were already in Zoar. And, and that's where we see it there in Genesis 19 in our text in verse 26. That's where we see what Lot's wife did. Verse 26 says, But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. So she's, be, she's probably behind Lot, and she's looking back behind Lot, and, and she became a pillar of salt. This wasn't an accidental glance. This was a, a longing. This was a beholding of the city that she knew and that she loved. It, it, it was the outworking of what was going on in her heart. She was not happy that she was being taken out of Sodom. She was not thankful for this. She was not grateful to God. She wanted, she wanted Sodom. And this was her final act of disobedience. So like I said, this, this was this was not an accidental quick thing. Someone can wonder, well, that's all she had to do for God to judge her? That's all she had to do for God to kill her and condemn her to an eternal hell, facing the same fate of, the, of those in Sodom? Well, that was the state of her heart. She was always like this. She was never converted. She was never redeemed. She just put up with her husband's religion, her husband's belief in God. She just endured whatever she saw of any spirituality in her husband. But she had no love for God. We don't know, we don't have any information about this lady. We don't know where she came from. We don't know when they were married. When they left Ur, Abraham had Sarah and Lot, but it, it doesn't say that Lot was, was with anyone. It doesn't say that he was married. It doesn't say that he took anyone from Ur. In Genesis chapter 12 verse 5, it says, then Abram, then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. So she could have been one of those people that came from Haran. She could have been from there. They just weren't together yet. They just weren't married yet. And we don't see that in the scriptures. Or she could have been a Sodomite. She could have been someone that Lot met in Sodom and married her there. We don't know. But from what we see in this verse, all we know about her is we don't even see that Lot even had a wife until the text here in Genesis 19, when Lot is already living inside of Sodom and the angels come and his daughters are there and here we see Lot's wife looked back and they're already arriving in Zoar, free from destruction. And she looks back and she's condemned like the rest. There is only one person who our Lord Jesus tells us to remember from the Old Testament scriptures. Just one person. Remember Lot's wife. There are many godly people in the Old in the Old Testament. Abraham was godly. The saint Isaac, Jacob, they were godly. Hannah and Ruth, great women of God. But none of them are, are people who Jesus says for us to remember. Jesus tells us, remember Lot's wife. It's, it's a short verse, just three words long. Remember Lot's wife. A short but very impacting verse of warning to us. This is the only time that Jesus brings up a specific person for us to think about, for us to remember and to be warned by something having to do with her life. And then there where it's mentioned in Luke chapter 17 verse 32 when Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, what does it have to do with? It has to do with the second coming. Jesus' second coming. 
And there in that text there in, in Luke 17, Jesus mentions how the people weren't prepared in the days of Noah. He mentions how the people weren't prepared in the days of Lot. As, as Lot was exiting Sodom, the people weren't prepared to go with him. Jesus said about them, about those in Sodom, he said, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And we can think that none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. What they are doing, it wasn't wrong. But what was wrong was they weren't prepared for judgment. They weren't right with, with, with God. They didn't make provision for their sin. They didn't deal with the problem of their sin. And Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. What does the Lord want us to remember about her? Well, we don't have any information about her. We don't have any accounts of, of, of his wife's life. We don't have any accounts of what she did, like we do with Abraham and Lot. We can look through chapters in Genesis, as we've been doing, about Abraham and about Lot and even about Sarah. We can look through chapters and, and accounts of their lives, but we don't have anything about Lot's wife. We don't have anything to go on but this, but, but, but this one verse. It was, well, in Genesis 19, this one verse in Genesis 19, that she turned back and she turned into a pillar of salt. She, she was killed. Instant, instant death, instant destruction, instant punishment from God. This one verse, one verse that shows her rebellion and her ruin. Or we can think her disobedience and her destruction. That's all we get from that one verse of, of Lot's wife. And what was it that she actually did? Well, what is it that she did that brought about her destruction? It was just an act of looking back, an act of turning back. That's all that she did. She disobeyed the command that the angel gave. And the command that the angel gave, he said, don't turn back. Don't look back. But we can think they're also told not, they're also told to go to the mountains. Did they obey that command? Lot's wife didn't obey the command that the angel gave, but neither did Lot. He didn't obey the command either. He didn't go to the, to the mountains either. And we can, we can ask this question. Why did Lot's wife get instant destruction and instant condemnation for her sin while Lot, who also disobeyed the command, who also sinned, why did he get mercy? Is it, is it unfair? And this is always a question that unbelievers ask. Why, if, if Christians still sin, why, why do they get off the hook? Why are they okay? Why don't they get condemned with everyone else? Why is it that those who aren't Christian or those who aren't believers, why are they the only ones who get condemned? Well, there are two ways that we can answer that question. Why was Lot shown mercy while his wife was condemned? There, there's one way we can answer that. It was that Lot was elect, but his wife wasn't. Lot was elect. God's love was upon Lot. God loved Lot and cared for him. But Lot's wife wasn't elect. She wasn't one of God's elect people. And we can answer that because we know the end of their lives. We know that Lot was a righteous person. He was a righteous man. And all we know about his wife was that she turned back and she was condemned just like the rest of those in Sodom. We can answer that way because we know the end of their lives. But for an unbeliever who we don't know the end of that person's life, why they will be condemned when a believer won't, 
Well, we, we can't go there. We can't say, well, they weren't elect. We don't have any biblical basis to do that. So we should never wonder that. But the other way that we can answer this question, why was she condemned while Lot got mercy? The other way to answer that question is that Lot had a covering for his sin, but she had no covering for her sin. Lot's sin was atoned for. Lot's sin was covered. Her sin wasn't. They both committed sin, but she had no covering for her sin. And we can think that she had so many privileges. Lot's wife was a very privileged woman, whether he married her there in Sodom or whether she was someone that came all the way from Haran with, with the people of God that, that went out with Abraham, with Abram at the time with, that went out with Abraham. She was a very privileged woman. She was married to a righteous man. Her uncle walked with God, Abraham. And she had to have known that there was something different about, about Lot. Because the text in Second Peter tells us that he was tormented while he was living in Sodom. It was a very difficult experience for him. He wasn't just, he didn't look like the rest of the Sodomites. There was something different in him. So she must have seen that being his wife. She was with him every day. She saw something of, of the difference in, in Lot. She had a husband who was righteous. She had an uncle who was righteous, who walked with God. And then she had two angels come to her house. And she fed them her food. Sitting in her house, there with them for a few hours with them. And she heard firsthand the warning of how she could escape the judgment of Sodom. This was a privileged woman. Not only that, but as they were walking out, as they were all hesitating and struggling and having a difficult time leaving everything that they knew and everything that they loved, the angel grabs her hand and whisks her away with the rest of her family. So many privileges, but her biggest problem was that she had no covering for her sin. She was graceless, and that was her ruin. She had no covering for her sin. And even today, anyone who is content with their privileges, but stays in that state of contentment and doesn't use those privileges in order to go to Christ, in order to flee their sin. If you stay in, in this picture that we have, we can see she's out of Sodom, but she's not yet out of the plain. She's not yet at the mountain. Anyone today who is out of Sodom, not living in that state, but is not at the mountain yet, they're content with their privileges. They think they're fine. They think, well, I have tomorrow and I have maybe the next day. I'm okay. I'm still in this privileged state. It's not that bad. That's a very dangerous position for anyone to be in. It's like someone who's sleeping in a house and the house is on fire. And they're privileged enough to wake up from sleep and to see the danger that they're in. How many people, spiritually speaking, their house is on fire and they never wake up from sleep and they perish that way and they're condemned with all those who reject Christ. Maybe they never outwardly professed to reject Christ, but they had no covering for their sin, so they perished. And their end is destruction. The result is hell. But to be privileged enough to wake up from sleep, to realize your house is on fire, and to realize you're in danger, but then to stay in bed and to not flee the house. That's what it's like to know you have all these privileges, spiritually speaking, but not to act upon them. Pri privileges don't save you from danger. They were never meant to save you from danger. And they definitely weren't meant for you to just trust in those privileges 
and just to think that everything's fine because you have privileges. J.C. Ryle said this about the privileges that many people have who are exposed to Christianity, maybe raised in Christian homes, maybe are real close to Christians and attend Christian churches where the gospel is preached. He said that those privileges only increase your responsibility and they aggravate your condemnation. They are not to be trusted in. They don't save. But God promised to forgive his people and to save his people. Instead of looking at these privileges, we need to look at God's promises and rest in those promises that God has given to us if we're trusting in Christ, if we've gone to Christ for, for our salvation. Promises are greater than privileges. Promises like in Psalm chapter 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, God says, and I will not remember your sins. Promises like Micah 7.19, you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And Luke 19 verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. These are all promises to God's people, for God's people, for those who have fled from their sin, made it not just out of Sodom, but all the way to the mountain and are trusting in Christ. And they have these promises given to them. And these promises are sure. They're rock solid. They will not fail. They're for God's people. If you find yourself not yet one of God's people, you can come to him. He says, come to me. He doesn't reject any of those who come to him by faith. So, remembering Lot's wife is, is really a warning to everyone because it has to do with the second coming that we all have to be prepared for. We all have to be mindful of, if you're following Jesus Christ, that's not where you say, well, I can live however I want to live. Even though Jesus is coming back, we all need to be mindful that Jesus can come back today. He can come back right now. It has to do with the context of his second coming. But there in Luke chapter 17, when Jesus says, remember Lot's wife, he, it says there in Luke 17, then he said to his disciples, Jesus was answering a question that the Pharisees had brought to him, but he started speaking to his disciples Jesus is talking to his people when he says to remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife is a warning to all people. Unbelievers, believers, all people are to remember Lot's wife. And then after he said that, Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. So as Lot's wife looked back to Sodom, she was seeking to preserve her life. She was seeking to hold on to, to preserve everything that she had known and loved in that style of life there in Sodom. She, she wanted to hold on to that. She wanted to keep that. And our Lord is saying, those who reject that lifestyle, those who reject the world, who are no longer holding on to their life as they know it in this world, they will be saved. They will be okay. There are those who are walking after God, who are dying daily, who are living according to God's word. But Lot's wife, she yearned for Sodom. She did not let it go. It's like what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, verse 62. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If, if, if you're someone who is following God after God, who lives for God, but you're really, even though you're holding on to the plow, even though you're trying to serve the Lord and trying to go to church and trying to do your daily devotions, but there is a longing in you, a yearning in you that, that you really do want to go back to the world, 
You really do want to go back to the life that God saved you from, that God rescued you from. If you're allowing that yearning to increase and to stay there, you're not dying to it, you're not cutting it off, you're not renouncing it, you're not trying to turn away from it. If, if, if you're looking to it, you're like the person who has his hand to the plow but's looking back. You're like Lot's wife. And our Lord tells us not to be like that. To no longer long for the world that we used to belong to. So let's look at the rest of our chapter. I'm going to read uh, there in Genesis 19, starting in verse 30. Verse 30, Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his, his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come in to us, as is the custom of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you and you go and, and lie with him, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is a father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is a father of the people of Ammon to this day. So after Lot managed to not have to go to the mountains, after he got his way and got to go to Zoar, he eventually got scared of being there and ended up going to the mountains anyways. So he's there in the mountains with his two daughters. That's all he has left. Were Lot's daughters married? Were they married to the to Lot's son, son-in-laws? In verse 14, it says that. It says that Lot's sons-in-law had married his daughters. The ESV and the NASB both say there that they were to marry his daughters. And then we know that in verse 8, Lot said about his daughters to the Sodomites that they had not known a man, that they were virgins. And this would, this would make sense if they were not married yet. And I think that's the case. I, I think they weren't, they weren't yet married. If you look there in verse 14, after the angels told Lot to go and, and warn your people and bring with you anyone who would come with you to escape the city, it says that there in verse 14, Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law. So he went out of the house to speak to them. And then there in verse 15, it says, Lot told or the angels told Lot, arise, take your wife and your daughters who are here. So his daughters were with him. So I think the sons-in-law lived somewhere outside the house. Uh, we don't know for sure. They could have lived there and been, out, been outside the house. But it looks like his sons were outside of the house, the sons-in-law, were outside of the house not living with the daughters, while the daughters were in the house living with them still. And people interpret it this way, that Lot's daughters were in the first part of marriage, kind of like a betrothal. That 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 is another another belief. Lot could have had four daughters. Um, 
but we don't know. I I think this was like a like a betrothal. He was in the they're in the first part of marriage. They were already committed to these men, but the marriage was not yet consummated. So Lot's daughters were virgins. They were virgins. They were not. They, they 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 had not been with a man, but the effects of living there in Sodom had so influenced Lot's family that they had this shameful act in their heads, this this abomination that they were thinking of committing with their dad. They thought, well, there, there's no other men left for us. Uh, they, they knew that Zohar had people there. So I, I don't know if either they thought God eventually destroyed Zohar and there were, there were no other men left alive and all that was left was them and their and their father, or if they thought maybe that they would just end up dying in the mountains. They said Lot was already an old man and, and there was no one left for them. He was Their father was old and maybe they thought that everyone had been destroyed or that they would just stay there and, and die. Either way, they were thinking about committing incest. And, and this is another sexual sin that's also co- condemned in Leviticus 18 and in Leviticus chapter 20. And these two acts of incest happen back to back. It says there in verse 34, it happened on the next day. Back to back acts of incest. And each time that it happened, Lot was so drunk that he didn't know what was going on when the actual act happened. It says there in verse 33 and in verse 35 about Lot, he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. His daughters instigated this. His daughters were guilty of of rape. But also, Lot wasn't entirely innocent from what happened. He had to have known. He had to have known that his daughters were, were up to something that was not good when they kept giving him more and more wine that first day. He got so drunk he didn't know what happened. And then the very next day, the very same thing, his daughters kept giving him more and more wine. So, you know, he knew what was going on. He knew that they, that, that they, that they were doing something that was not right, something that was very evil. He knew they were getting him drunk. And here we can look at this issue of drunkenness. I talked to a brother about this just, I think it was a week and a half ago. Drinking was not the problem. The problem was getting drunk. Getting drunk was the problem. The Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. A common interpretation of that is that that Timothy had stomach problems. And because of those stomach problems, the water he was drinking wasn't wasn't good for him. So the apostle told him, take a little bit of wine. The, The polluted water that Timothy was drinking would have been cleansed. The wine would have killed the bacterial organisms and killed the germs. Keep in mind, he said, drink a little wine. He didn't give him... Uh, just permission to just casually drink whenever he wanted to. Drink a little wine. This was a medicinal thing for Timothy, for his health. But if we would say, well, drinking any amount of wine is a sin, the apostle wouldn't have told Timothy, well, just have a little bit of sin in order to have a better, have better health. He couldn't have recommended just a little bit of sin. So we can't say that drinking is a sin. The first miracle that Jesus, that Jesus did was there in, in, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and turning water into wine. 
Lot's problem wasn't drinking. His problem was drunkenness. It says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Dissipation is wasteful extravagance in the pursuit of pleasure. And we can think about being filled with the Spirit has to do with being influenced by the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, in a way that the Holy Spirit affects your actions, controls your actions, leads you to do what He wants you to do. We're not to drink in a way to where the alcohol affects our actions, controls our actions, leads us to act in ways that we would not normally act if we had not drank the alcohol. We're not to be influenced by wine or alcohol or anything that would affect our behavior. Anything that can intoxicate us is condemned in Scripture. A good way to look at this, a, a good standard that we should have as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is that we are always to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Always to be sober in our thinking. We are to be sure that our thinking is not influenced in any way by not just alcohol, but any kind of drugs, wine, beer, drugs, any kind of outside influence is not to affect our thinking, our thinking processes. Once we realize my thinking is dumbed down, I'm slower, that's when we need to be careful. That's when we're being influenced in a way that is not acceptable in the scriptures. As stewards of, of our bodies, as stewards of our minds, we're responsible for, for our thoughts, for our minds, for our minds to always be in, in, in a sto- sober state, and not just our minds, but our bodies. And not just alcohol and drugs can influence us, but we can be so overtaken by our lust that we can be influenced by it in a way that we are intoxicated by our lust. Lust doesn't just have to do with sexual passions. Lust has to do with anything that we want that is condemned. We can lust for food. We can lust for something that's not ours. Covetousness leads to, to taking things that are not ours, things that we, that we are not given by the Lord, that we should not have. Anger. Anger can influence us in such a way that we commit acts that we would look back on and regret that we did them. We can land ourselves in jail because of some angry act. We can kill someone because of a fight, because we're over, overcome by anger and our lives are ruined because we allowed some passion that we have in ourselves to affect our behavior. We are not to be controlled by anything. We are to always be self-controlled. We are always to be able to calculate what we are doing and why we are doing it. We are to recognize that we are stewards of all of our of all of our actions, of everything that we do, of everything that we have, of our bodies. So a good standard for Christians to have is that we are to always remain sober-minded and self-controlled. Not not allow ourselves to be influenced by any outside thing. It says in First Peter chapter five verse eight: "Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." Be sober. Be sober. That includes being sober-minded. Titus chapter two verse two: "That the older men be sober." Titus chapter two verse six: "Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded." About anger, how anger can control us. It says in Proverbs chapter 16 verse 32, it likens being slow to anger with ruling one's spirit. So someone who can, someone who is, is angry is no longer in control of their spirit. They're no longer in control of their thinking and their actions. About drunkenness, it says in Proverbs chapter 23 verses 33 and 35, it describes the result of drunkenness. 
It says, your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, they have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? So this isn't someone who's sleeping. This is someone who is so drunk by alcohol that he doesn't know what is going on. And this is how it was for Lot. He was so drunk that he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know when she lay down. He didn't know when she arose. But this is far from where we should be as as, as believers. As people indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We definitely should not be here. But if we keep this as a standard, we must always be sober-minded. That has to do with our minds and our bodies. And we always, and we also need to be self-controlled. That has to do with our behavior, with our actions. If we keep that as our standard, we'll never get to the place where Lot was. Was oldest daughter became pregnant. She named her son Moab. Moab means of my father. His youngest daughter named her son Ben Ami, meaning of my people, and Moab meaning of my father, Ben-Ami meaning of my people. Of my people was a bit more discreet, but you think about it. The oldest daughter named her son of my father. There was no shame in her act. Even in the naming of her son, she wasn't ashamed of, of who the father of her son was, her, her own father, her dad. No shame in, in, in what they had done. No shame in naming their children, even of my people. They had no respect for their father, just like the men of Sodom had no respect for Lot. Just like their, their, the men that they were to marry, those two young men, they had no respect for Lot. They were laughing when he was trying to warn them. They thought he was joking. Well, the, his, his, his two daughters had no respect for him either. No respect. There was no respect in the family. There was no love for one another in the family. Lot's daughters wanted children. They thought they couldn't have any children any other way. So what did they do? They chose to use Lot the same way that Lot tried to use his daughters to appease the homosexuals just earlier in the chapter. Just using each other. No respect for one another. No love for one another. And, and that's the way Lot's family looks like it was. Even his wife. Just looking back, longing for Sodom. Everyone was in their own world using one another, had no love for each other, just selfish, living for self. And that's the way Lot was. That's the way Lot's wife was. That's the way his daughters were. His daughters ended up being just like their father. You know, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's the way it was with his daughters. They weren't much different from him. Lot should have been living according to the proverb that says, The righteous man walks in his integrity. His children are blessed after him. But he wasn't living that way, and he reaped the fruits of it. The Moabites and the Ammonites descended from his sons through his daughters, and these two people groups became the enemies of God. So much so, so much the, uh, the enemies of God. And these are, these are descendants of Lot, a righteous man. Nephew of Abraham, one of God's people. These aren't the pagan Gentiles that are surrounding them. These aren't the Canaanites. They're descendants of Lot. But they became the enemies of God's people. 
In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1 and 2, it says that they were the enemies of God's people so much that they were forbidden from even worshiping with God's people. Forbidden from worshiping alongside God's people. They should have been part of God's people, just extensions of the family tree, worshiping and following after God, but they were forbidden from, from the temple. Forbidden from worshiping alongside God's people. They were treated like they were fellow Gentiles. They were acting like they were Gentiles. This was not a good legacy for Lot. The Moabites had hired Balaam to curse the Israelites. Another time, the Moabites didn't allow the Israelites to come through their land because they were trying to get to their territory and they, they had to wait. They had to go all the way around. They were acting like they, they weren't, uh, they weren't the same people, like they didn't follow the same God, like they didn't worship the same God. But even to the Moabites, even to these people who didn't follow after God, God would show mercy. We're all familiar with Ruth. Well, Elimelech was a man of Bethlehem, Judah, who went to live in the country of Moab. While there, he, he, he took a wife named Naomi, and they had two sons. Eventually, Elimelech died, and Naomi's two sons found a couple of wives. They took a couple of wives. They, they married them, and ten years later, those, those two sons also, also died. And then Naomi, she's at a place where she says she doesn't want to be called Naomi anymore, which means pleasant. Her life wasn't pleasant. She lost her husband. She lost her two sons. She tells these, these daughter-in-laws to go back to where they're from. Well, Orpah goes back to where she's from, and Ruth tells her that she doesn't want to go back to her people. She wants to stay with Naomi. Ruth tells her, wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth followed Naomi back to Bethlehem, and while there in Bethlehem, Boaz noticed her, a man of God. Boaz told Ruth, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. Boaz tells Ruth, the Lord repay you, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Well, Boaz married Ruth. They had a son. His name was Obed. Obed's son was Jesse. Jesse's son was David. David's son was Solomon all the way until we get to the Lord Jesus Christ. There in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, we see that Ruth is mentioned there. Ruth is one of the people mentioned there in the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ruth, a Moabite. And it says that in the book of Ruth, Ruth, the Moabite. The Moabites were shown mercy even though they rejected God, even though they came about through a, a sinful act. Their people were, were shown mercy and, and their, their people, the Moabites, are now in the genealogy of our Lord because of God's mercy. Why are they there? Because God is showing us that he works his story of grace in broken lives. People whose lives are broken, people who are embarrassed, who are ashamed of their past, ashamed of their lifestyle, can find forgiveness through Jesus Christ. God works in broken lives. There is nothing that we've been through that would keep us from Christ. There isn't a single person alive that God would say, 
not you. No, you can't come. You don't, you don't fit. You're not righteous enough. God works in broken lives. And He works grace in them. The only, the only people who don't find grace in Christ are those who directly refuse that grace. They can say, well, I'm not directly refusing it. I'm just not ready yet. Well, that's a direct refusal. Those are the only ones who don't find mercy. But God works in broken lives and, and those who come to Him and find grace in Him can find that He makes all things new. He makes all things new. Father, we pray that you would, um, that you would bless our time together.